You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Genesis 3, 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten? From the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Hi DPC. Today we're having an Advent sermon. It's the second Sunday of four Sundays in the period of Advent. And as we think about this subject, we're going to be moving around the Bible quite a bit. So I invite you to have the outline from our website in front of you so you can follow along. Uh, And there's lots of Bible references that we're not going to read out, and you might like to look them up afterwards. Uh, As we come to think about God's Word, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of Uh, gathering around your word, uh, hearing from you week by week. And we pray that as we open your word again today, that you would speak to us and encourage us. Amen. Well, This year we've spent a lot of time hanging out in hope, hanging out for good news about the end of COVID-19. We've been checking news updates, uh, watching the numbers of infections go up and down, uh, doing our part to stay safe and look out for others all in the hope that we might survive this global pandemic. 
Christmas has been a big motivator for this because we were told that if we could get this virus under control, we could have a normal Christmas. Well, a COVID normal Christmas. And it looks like that hope will be realised. After more than a month of no new cases in Victoria, it seems that COVID-19 is under control here, which is a huge step towards its defeat. We just need to hang out a bit longer and then we can celebrate Christmas. But what then? COVID is still causing devastation in other parts of the world and there are much bigger problems we face. We need to be hanging out in hope, but for something far greater. Why not the end of all evil and suffering? Let's be honest. Viruses are just one of many things that disrupt and threaten our lives. There are bad governments and corrupt leaders. There are greedy people who waste resources and oppress the poor. There are those who don't value the lives of others. People lie to one another, hurt one another, exclude one another. There is evil and suffering everywhere. Thankfully, God is doing something about it. And so we can hang out in hope. We actually had a glimpse of this last week as we finished the book of Romans. You might remember that Aaron mentioned verse 20 of chapter 16. It reads like this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is the devil who seeks to deceive people about the truth who seeks to distort the teachings of God, especially the gospel of Jesus, and who seeks to divide God's people against one another. And this is not to say that Satan is the cause of all evil and suffering, but he's certainly a focal point, and he's the most powerful force and influence for evil activity. We should long for his ultimate defeat because it will signal the defeat of all evil and the end of all suffering. And we can be confident that this will happen because uh, the language of crushing Satan underfoot, that has a long history that links to the overarching story of the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3 and leads directly to the Christmas story. In fact, this shows why Christmas is so important. It's part of a much wider story, you know, the grand story of the Bible, but also the story of humanity, of human history and where we are headed. This involves you and me. This December at DPC, we're going to be looking at the question, why Christmas? And today we'll begin by answering it by first looking at how Advent is the season of waiting for the serpent crusher. The word Advent is from a Latin word that means coming. It's a season of waiting, and many of us would have grown up with Advent calendars that we used to count down the days until Christmas. And for many people, Advent is just a countdown to a party day. But as Christians, we know it's a countdown to remembering the birth of a special person. We celebrate his Advent or his coming into the world. It might surprise you to know that in ancient times, God's people were waiting for this special person too even though they didn't know exactly who he would be. They had been waiting for him ever since the Garden of Eden, waiting for the serpent crusher. We had Genesis 3 verses 1 to 15 read out to us earlier, and it recounts the fall of the first humans. It speaks of how uh, human evil and suffering came into the world through the temptation of the serpent. And it speaks of how 
one would come to crush this serpent and rescue humanity from its fallen state. We all know the story, right? Adam and Eve were living in the Garden of Eden in perfect relationship with God and each other. But then one day the crafty serpent slithered up to Eve and tempted her to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She then offered it to Adam and he ate too. This was in direct disobedience to the one command God had given Adam. And so the sin of this couple brought God's just anger and righteous judgment upon them and the entire world. In Genesis 3 verse 14, God curses the serpent for this act. And then in verse 15, he goes on and we read this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent and humans were united in resisting God, but this act ultimately led to hostility between them, even between their offspring. Humans will see snakes and stomp on their heads. Snakes will see humans and snap at their heels, sinking their venomous fangs in. But this story in Genesis is more than just an explanation of why humans and snakes tend not to get along. Instead, it's a prophecy. It's a promise from God about how he will deal with the damaging effects of the serpent's work. It will be through the woman's future offspring defeating that serpent. This is the first good news in the Bible. It's the first message of salvation that promises the defeat of evil and the end of hostility. Do you notice that God says to the serpent, he will crush your head. Who is this he? Well, clearly, it's a specific person, a child of the woman, and he will be a head crusher. And whose head will he crush? Is it the dis- uh, a descendant of the serpent? No, it's the serpent himself. So a future child will crush this current serpent. Can you see that there's more going on here than we might first realise? Snakes don't live that long. If this is meant to be a generational battle, then we could hardly expect this snake to still be around. It seems instead that this snake in Genesis 3 was either Satan in disguise or a literal snake that Satan somehow used as his mouthpiece. Either way, God speaks directly to the devil and says, Though you try to strike the heel of the woman's offspring, he will crush your head. And so this set God's people on the lookout for the son who would defeat evil. And thus began a long time of waiting for his arrival or his advent. The question then is this, who is the serpent crusher? Now I'm guessing most of you know who it is, but let's just pretend that you don't, okay? And so you can come on a journey through the Bible with me. In this way, we can gain a greater appreciation of why Christmas is so exciting and wonderful. Let's start by looking at Adam's son, Cain. The very first human offspring was this boy, Cain. Listen to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Could this be the serpent crusher? Is he the offspring that will defeat Satan? No. 
I mean, what did he do to his younger brother, Abel? In a fit of jealousy, he killed him. Rather than being the serpent crusher, Cain was a murderer like Satan. In fact, the Apostle John gives this warning in his first letter. This is chapter 3, verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. How is humanity supposed to defeat the serpent when there are people joining his team? But that's the sad fact of human history. There are many who bear his family resemblance by opposing God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we find that tendency within our own hearts, don't we? And so the serpent is not just a symbol of Satan. The serpent is also a symbol of sin and rebellion. That's why it must be crushed. Well, later on, Eve gave birth to a son, a boy to replace her beloved Abel. But the battle raged on between the serpent's offspring and Seth's offspring. And God's people waited. It got so bleak on the earth that God sent a flood to wash away sinful men and women, saving only Noah and his family through the ark. But things didn't get better because Noah's descendants soon continued the war against each other. And God's people waited. Eventually, God chose another man, Abraham, and promised that through him all the world will be blessed. In fact, in chapter two, uh, 22 of Genesis, God says this, And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So a son of Abraham will achieve this awesome feat. I mean, surely he'd have to be the serpent crusher, because how else would there be real, lasting blessings? We read of Abraham being a hundred years old when his wife Sarah has their one and only child, Isaac. Abraham's son, Isaac, this miracle child. Could this be the serpent crusher? Is he the offspring that will defeat Satan? No. And really, there's no particular reason why I say that other than he's just a bit of a non-event. I mean, I don't mean to be rude. I'm sure he was a nice guy. But for the first 40 years of his life, the Bible only records him uttering two sentences. And he doesn't really do much with his life. He's actually more famous for being the father of those troublesome twins, Jacob and Esau. I mean, you know the story, don't you? When Isaac was old and his eyes were failing, he wanted to pass on his blessings to his older son Esau, but Jacob disguised himself as his hairy older brother, put on goat skins on his arms and neck. He went into his father, who uh, Isaac thought this was his elder son, and so he blessed Jacob, and Esau missed out on the inheritance. So Isaac's not really the one who's going to bring about a new world, is he? Rather than being a serpent crusher, Isaac was deceived, just like Eve. And maybe it's Jacob. But he was clearly a rotten sort. But yeah, God still did make promises to him, and so the blessings from Abraham of Abraham went to his family. As we read through the Bible, we learn of Jacob's twelve sons, and their families eventually became the twelve tribes of Israel. And there are many great sons in this family. Like Joseph, who became a powerful ruler in Egypt. And then Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt after they'd become slaves. Then Joshua, who led the people into the promised land. 
And then all the mighty judges who kept the enemies of God's people at bay. But none of these offspring fit the bill. And so God's people waited. Finally, the people of Israel demanded that God give them a king. They had a bit of a false start with Saul, who turned out to be a dud. But then God chose a special man from among the sons of Jesse. We read in 1 Samuel 16 that seven sons were paraded past the prophet Samuel, but God kept saying to him, no, no, no. Finally, Jesse called for his younger son, David, who was out tending the sheep. He stood before Samuel and God says in verse 12, Rise and anoint him. He, uh, this is the one. Jesse's son, David. Could he be the serpent crusher? Is he the offspring that would defeat Satan? Well, he got after a pretty good start, didn't he, when he defeated Goliath? In 1 Samuel 17, we read, out, read about a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And the enemy's champion, Goliath, is described in detail, particularly his armor. Listen to verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Now that armor is a bit interesting. It's made of scales. In the Bible, scales are always associated with fish, but we know that scales are that snakes have a type of scales too. Is Goliath being presented here as a giant serpent? Well, check out his threat to young David in verse 44. I'm going to read out from the 1984 edition of the NIV Bible. I think it makes it a bit clearer. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now, those are interesting phrases, aren't they? Sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. Goliath speaks as an offspring of the serpent reigniting the ancient battle. But unlike Adam and Eve, David doesn't falter and instead shouts out, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He then picks up his sling and sends a rock flying at Goliath. And where does it hit him? Right in the head. The giant falls down dead. And then David runs up to his enemy, draws his enemy's sword and cuts off Goliath's head. He crushes the head of the serpentine giant. Could this be the serpent crusher? Is is he the offspring that will defeat Satan? No. David went on to become king, but sadly, he was tempted by Satan into sinning. Not only did he steal another man's wife and then arrange his death, we read these words in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. David is punished by God for this, and it's clear that he cannot resist the serpent. So where do we look then? Who will be the promised son? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, we read that God promises David that he will have a special son. Ben's going to give us this reading from verses 12 to 16. Thanks, Ben. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. After David died, his son Solomon became king. It becomes clear that the hope of Israel, the hope of humanity, lies in a descendant of Abraham who will be a king. Solomon was a wise ruler who led the people well. He built the temple of God as promised and his kingdom was one of peace and prosperity. It seemed that finally God's promises were all coming to fruition. The the nations came to Solomon and received blessings from him just like God promised Abraham. David's son Solomon. Could this be the serpent crusher? Is he the offspring that would defeat Satan? No. Just like Adam, he didn't keep God's word. He didn't protect the promised land by keeping out lies and, and temptation. He married many foreign women and they turned his heart after false gods. He failed to remain devoted to the Lord. After King Solomon died, a series of kings came and went. Some were terrible, some were okay, but none were the serpent crusher. And so God's people waited. The nation fell into greater and greater sin so that God eventually sent them into exile in Babylon for 70 years. But later he sent them back to rebuild Jerusalem and their nation. During the time of failed monarchy and during the time of rebuilding, God raised up prophets, men who continued to hold out the promises of God before the people. They told the people to keep looking forward to a future son, to keep waiting. So. Who is the chosen child? Who is the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent? Who is the serpent crusher? Shout it out if you know. Yes, it's Jesus. I mean, you knew it was going to be him, didn't you? But having taken a journey through the whole Bible, we can better appreciate this truth. Also, we can have a clearer understanding of why he's the promised one. And how it is that he accomplished his task. He is the ultimate son, the son of sons. In Luke chapter 3, we read his genealogy. He's a son of David. He's a son of Jesse, a son of Abraham, a son of Adam, and son of God. And so let's look at what it means for him to be the son or offspring of these people. First of all, he is the son of Adam. Just like the first humans, Jesus was tempted by Satan, but he was able to resist. Listen to Mark 1 verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Adam was in the garden and he failed. Jesus was outside of the garden in the wilderness and yet he succeeded. He was surrounded by wild animals. The hostile creation was around him. The serpent attacked him, 
yet he prevailed. In Luke's account, he even tells us that Jesus resisted Satan by quoting from the scripture. Unlike Adam and Eve, he knew God's word and he spoke it. Also, as a son of Adam, Jesus was a real man. God became man at the incarnation. And the author of Hebrews explains why this is so important in chapter 2, verse 14 of his letter. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. <coughs> Secondly, Jesus is the son of, uh, son of Abraham. He was the child of promise, the one through whom all the world would be blessed. Where Isaac was a bit of a non-event, Jesus is the main event. We read in Galatians 3 that he was the offspring or the seed that God had promised to Abraham. He is the one who secured the inheritance of eternal life and a place on the renewed earth for all who believe. The gift of forgiveness is secured by Jesus, which means people can move from the serpent's household or family to God's household or family. Thirdly, Jesus is the son of Jesse. Do you know the prophecy from Isaiah 11 verse 1? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. This is a picture of uh, the Davidic dynasty, the, the monarchy kind of being pretty much a stump. It's been cut down. Yet it speaks of a, of a new king coming, one like David, one who comes from his dad Jesse, but who's greater than David, chosen of God and raised up to defeat great giants. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 12, we read of a great cosmic battle between God's angels and Satan. Listen to verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. We take note there that the serpent from Genesis 3 is revealed to be Satan here in Revelation. We learn that it's Jesus, the promised child, who deals this decisive blow to Satan. The serpent still battles, but Jesus binds him and will ultimately, and he will ultimately be defeated in the future. So Jesus is the son of Jesse, the new David who protects God's people by finally crushing the head of the serpent. As 1 John 3 verse 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. But how did he do it? By being the son of David. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, the theme of the Messiah develops until it's understood that the son of David will come to defeat God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. This is not done through him wielding a slingshot or sword, but through him suffering on the cross. As Jesus entered Jerusalem while riding on a donkey, the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They hailed him as the saving king. But the way he saved was by going to the cross. In his death, he finally defeated Satan by paying the price for mankind's sin. Colossians 2 verse 15 describes Jesus' victory over spiritual powers like this. 
and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus humiliated and defeated the serpent on the cross. Satan thought his day had come. He'd struck out at the Messiah and bruised his heel. It appeared to be a mortal wound. Yet three days later, Jesus rose to everlasting life. He allowed the serpent to poison him because as the chosen one, the perfect man, his death at Satan's hand was all part of God's plan to satisfy the law, to satisfy death and to satisfy God's justice. Jesus Christ has defeated the serpent through his death and resurrection and he now reigns on David's throne. God the Father has established his kingdom and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the son of Adam the son of Abraham, the son of Jesse, the son of David. He is the victorious son of God who reigns in heaven and we wait for his second coming, for his second advent. This is why we have Christmas. It's to remember and celebrate the truth that God always had a plan to send his son to save the world and he's still following this plan to end all evil and suffering. And this is why Advent is so important this season. In fact, the big idea I want you to take away today is this. Advent is about celebrating the first coming of Jesus, who died on the cross to crush Satan, and about waiting in confident hope for his second coming. So let's finish by thinking about how we can use Advent to prepare for a better Christmas this year, and also prepare for a better year and beyond. In other words, let's look at how to use Advent to build your hope. The first part of this is to look back in faith to the first Advent of Jesus, where he won the battle against evil. This gives us hope that evil and suffering will one day end. But it also shows that there is hope for you and me. It doesn't take much reflecting on the problems of the world before we realise that we are part of the problem too. No, evil isn't just out there, it's also in here. As much as we need Satan to be crushed, we need the sin in our heart to be crushed too, lest we be crushed along with the devil when God comes to purify the world. And so, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, then I invite you to trust in him as the one who can cleanse you and heal you and restore you to God. If you already trust in Jesus, then make use of this time of Advent to deepen your faith. And even go to the welcome card and check out the resources sheet that's linked there. Grab a book to read on your own or with your household. If you've got children, use this opportunity to rehearse the story of the Bible and the birth of Jesus as a way of remembering that we're part of a bigger story and that Christmas is more than just a fun day. Instead, it's an opportunity to celebrate again the birth of our Saviour. The second part of using the Advent season to build your hope is to look forward in hope to the second Advent of Jesus, where he will restore everything. In Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter preached about the need to repent and to wait for Jesus. Listen to verse 21. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. We can pin a lot of hopes on Christmas as a time when the troubles of the past year will dissolve and 
I imagine many people in Victoria are doing that, especially this year. But as Christians, we should have a bigger vision. We're not simply hanging out in hope for a COVID-free future. We're hanging out in hope for a sin-free future, an evil-free and suffering-free future. We're longing for our Saviour and Lord to return so that he will establish an eternal kingdom of peace and happiness with God at the centre. And so use this Advent season to build your hope for a better future and set your sights higher than simply enjoying some shiny new toys or fruit mince pies. The third part of using Advent to build your hope is to watch out for evil and resist it. Satan was crushed in the past and his ultimate defeat will come in the future. But he's still out there today trying to do as much damage as he can, refusing to admit that he's lost. In Revelation 12 verse 17, we read this about Satan. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Talking about us. Christians. Jesus, uh, Satan is waging war against Jesus' people. Satan is still deceiving, distorting and dividing. As those who are secure in Jesus, we should be very watchful, especially at this time of year. Watch out for the greed in your heart that will tempt you to consume and consume. Watch out for the bitterness in your heart that will prevent you from forgiving others and being at peace with family and friends. Watch out for the pride in your heart that will lead you to rely on yourself and not Christ. Watch out for those doubts about the gospel, because that's what Satan wants us to do, is to trust in ourselves, to trust in others, rather than to trust in Christ. Let's resist the devil and keep looking back to the cross in faith and forward to the future in hope. And in this way, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey through the Bible, from Genesis 3 right through to Revelation, uh, and seeing that as God people waited patiently for so many years, as the hope and expectations of this serpent crush of this special son grew and grew, we see that all of those promises, those expectations were all met in Jesus, even more than they could imagine, even more than we can truly understand even today. And so may we look back to the birth of Jesus to celebrate uh, that he is the serpent crusher who's come into the world to save us. And may we look forward in hope to his second coming, his second advent, where he will restore everything. And so please help us to be watchful today as we walk by faith and hope. Amen.